Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 28th, 2023. Uh, we live in an age where we're searching for genius, greatness. We don't seem to be able to find it. Um, a few days ago, I saw uh, the new movie, Ridley Scott's new movie, Napoleon. It's a, it's a big film about a small man. Uh, and uh, Mark Mizawa, the great uh, Columbia University historian, wrote an interesting op-ed on the movie uh, a couple of days ago entitled, Why Napoleon, Once Larger Than Life, Now, now Feels So Small. He noted that... Uh, we don't seem to be able to deal with greatness these days. We're not sure what to do with it, which explains why Ridley Scott's movie about Napoleon feels so odd. At one point, of course, Napoleon was considered a truly great man. Um, another great man, Beethoven, uh, wrote a symphony, his famous Eroica, Symphony Number no. 3, after Napoleon. One wonders if Na Beethoven was around now, whether he would... Uh, be writing rap music or perhaps tweeting or, or putting his stuff up on uh, TikTok. Certainly, this issue of greatness is one that we're uncomfortable with. One man who's given a great deal of thought to greatness and genius is my guest today. Bulant Atalai has a um, very distinguished lifetime academic. He's written extensively on Leonardo da Vinci, three books on da Vinci, thought a lot about genius, what it encompasses, what it involves, what it requires. And he's put it all in a new book, a genius kind of book called Beyond Genius, a journey through the characteristics and legacies of transformative minds. And Bulent is joining us from his home in Fredericksburg, just south of Washington, D.C., a rather chilly Fredericksburg, I hear. Uh, Bulent, I'm sorry about that. Maybe we can warm everybody up. Have you seen the new Napoleon movie? No, I've read something about it, how he actually didn't order the shelling of the pyramids as the movie depicts. Bulent, uh, you don't write, I don't think, that much about Napoleon in the new book, but how much is genius and greatness, how much are they bound up with one another? Could, could Napoleon have uh, got, no, onto, it, got into this book? Is, was he a genius in his own way? He would be a past, I certainly would mention him, but uh, I, my, my focus is on genius in the arts and sciences. I've actually done art all my life, and I've, I, I hold the PhD in theoretical physics. In fact, I was a postdoc at Berkeley, where I think that's close to where you are. Yeah, uh, And over my long career in physics, I've met about, not about, precisely 29 Nobel Prize winners. Most of them are very bright. Some of them are uh, geniuses, but at most they're ordinary geniuses. Genius comes in degrees from ordinary to magician to transformative. Magicians would be, a Feynman would have been a, magician as his, the person he looked up to Dirac at Cambridge University. But in this arts, 
Of course, the great titans of the high Renaissance were geniuses. I have a different uh, definition than the usual uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, the German philosopher Einstein liked very much, used to say, uh, talent hits a target that no one else can hit. Genius hits a target that nobody else can see. It's nice and poetic, but I have a slightly more quantifiable definition. I use uh, soaring intelligence, uh, great uh, creativity, and legacy. What if there is no legacy, then the genius is missing. It's a mathematical product. If it's zero in one factor, it's zero in all. I don't really look at genius among leaders, but certainly there are some. And in sports, there are geniuses, but I'm not interested in those. It's the arts and sciences. The arts and sciences. You mentioned um, Einstein. One of the five figures who you focus on in the book is Albert Einstein. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie, and I apologize if I keep on referring to movies, but the big movie of the year is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Albert Einstein, yeah, Albert Einstein emerges from this film in a heroic way, but perhaps because of his ordinariness, it was fictionalized. One wonders whether really uh, Oppenheimer ever even met Einstein, but it was one of the key moments in the movie where a very troubled Oppenheimer met a very cheerful, realistic uh, Einstein. What did you make of the film and the presentation of Einstein as this down-to-earth man? He was down to earth, and he was a bundle of contradictions. His secretary of 28 years was alive at the Institute for Advanced Study when I was there in the 70s, and I got her to know her very well. So I get one first-hand stories from her. He was ordinary. He loved a good joke. But he was a he was a bundle of contradictions in the sense that he was a pacifist. And yet his famous letter to to FDR, to Roosevelt, in 1939 uh, kicked off the Manhattan Project, which led to the nuclear age. And it transformed humanity, just like uh, artificial intelligence is uh, is, uh, at the verge of doing now. Your book... Uh, Bulent uh, focuses on beyond, your book Beyond Geniuses focuses on th- five transformative minds. And as you say, you have an interest in the arts, but your background is in theoretical physics. So That's right. three, three of the uh, three of the geniuses you choose: uh, Isaac Newton, um, Albert Einstein, uh, or a couple, uh, 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 and uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci is the third. And Leonardo da Vinci, who is, of course, a universal genius, is all physicists or scientists. <laughs> then, of course, you have Beethoven and yes. uh, Shakespeare, who uh, probably aren't scientific. How did you choose those five? And what That's, do they all have in common? You know, Shakespeare is unrivaled in any language. It's unrivaled. In fact... His first folio uh, 
was just celebrated for its 400th anniversary. In, 19, in 1623, the collection of 36 plays, a missing one, was published. It was no problem to, to choose Shakespeare. The musicians, it could have been Bach, it could have been Mozart, just as gifted as Beethoven. But in my case, I knew the most about Beethoven. I liked him the most. And he might have been a pathological twin, a psychopathological twin of Isaac Newton, the greatest scientist, mathematician of them all, just born 138 years after Newton. In personality and background, they were the same person. That's really the reason I chose him. So, yeah, and there have been a lot of books on, on this sort of thing. So, Leonardo, Shakespeare, Newton, Einstein, Beethoven. Yes. What do they have in common? What makes them geniuses, Bulan? Well, aversion to authority is one quality. Another quality might be... Sorry, say that again. Aversion to authority. So they were rebels, all of them in they their own way. You have to be a rebel to, uh, to, go, to make the changes. Uh, they were... Uh, they were auto they um, Sorry to jump in here. They weren't the kind of conformist rebel rebels of our age. Uh, the idea that you're almost required to rebel, were they? But you know, in the very last chapter, the, in the epilogue, actually, I talk about genius in the digital age, in the computer age. We're obviously in a revolution, and uh, Steve Jobs was a person I chose and spoke about. I didn't want to touch Elon Musk, who would, who fits all the characteristics, who has all those characteristics, the aversion to authority. Um, you know, it turns out three of the five are left-handed. Not that you have to be left-handed to be a genius, but I think you have to contend with a right-handed world and it makes you a little bit more resourceful. Three of the five, another three of the five were gay. Uh, that seems to be another. Uh, 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 who, who were the three gay men oh, in, in of the five? Leonardo, Shakespeare, and most likely Newton. Most likely. He was never married, but he had a nervous breakdown after his friend and young mathematician, Dulier went back to Switzerland. He had lived with uh, Newton for a couple of years. So those were the three gay ones. Well, wasn't Shakespeare married? And we've done married. shows on Shakespeare's wife. That's right, right. But uh, he also liked um, uh, a peer in, in England, Fairfax. And a peer the man became, Lord Fairfax became, the um, the fair youth in the sonnets, in many of the sonnets, he's the fair youth, and those magnificent sonnets. For example, uh, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? This is about to a young. He could have been a pedophile nowadays, uh, but this is Shakespeare writing his incredible poetry. 
We are speaking with Bulent Atale, a distinguished scholar, physicist, an expert on genius, and the author of a new book, Beyond Genius, a book that focuses on five geniuses, Leonardo da Vinci, Shakespeare, Newton, Einstein, um, and Beethoven. Uh, Bulent, as I mentioned at the beginning, you have three of your earliest books are on Leonardo da Vinci. He is the genius of geniuses in the sense maybe you suggest Newton was, but he was a man who painted, who sculpted, who was a scientist. How did you discover Leonardo and why did you choose to write three books about him? Well, I, as a youngster, I lived in London. We rented, my father was a military attaché, a minor diplomat from, from Turkey to London. And we rented a small, actually a townhouse, once owned by Lord Curzon. At eight or nine, the only thing I knew about Leonardo is that he used to say, the eyes are the windows to the soul. In that home we, house we lived in were Curzon family portraits. And I used to examine them. There was no soul in those paintings. Then I discovered why they had no soul. The, the pupils were all closed. I, my family had just obtained a new bottle opener that made perfect circular holes. I went around opening those pupils. Fortunately, uh, unfortunately, uh, my deed was discovered a few weeks later when another diplomat visited us and he he apparently saw the holes in the paintings and he said yeah i'm sure it didn't make you very popular yes he said you do you have a son well he had gotten to the crime and the culprit immediately this had to be the devil well i spent the rest of my life uh learning more about leonardo and and doing mathematics and physics. And at one point in high school, a school in Delaware called St. Andrews, where the Dead Poets Society was filmed. In the film, uh, I heard, rather at the school, I heard a lecture by the father of a student. He was an engineer and a part-time artist who talked about the divine proportion. All of a sudden, I was introduced to mathematics and art in the same uh, same frame, in a sense. It was a, the intersection of art and science. And I spent most of my life pursuing this. I would do my own artwork with the, the divine proportion and the symmetries that came from it. And then I learned that Leonardo was doing precisely the same. Now, the thing about Leonardo and all the others is that they really are autodidacts. A, a great education can be a hindrance. Uh, Leonardo had no education whatsoever, although he might have had one grade, the first grade. Shakespeare had eight years of schooling. Beethoven had five years of schooling. Forget about Newton having gone to Cambridge. It was a, he was teaching himself. He was an autodidact. And even Einstein, Einstein spent most of his time uh, sending his friends to his classes to take notes. His wife, for example, took notes for him. But they were autodidacts. They taught themselves. 
and they were all polymaths. Now, there's no polymath like Leonardo da Vinci, the master of everything, but, but they had different worlds that they were interested in. And the interaction of these different worlds really does help you with your own, uh, your own uh, major, in a sense. I think if we do one thing right in the American education system, we give a good liberal arts, a balanced liberal arts education to undergraduates. Often in Europe, uh, people will start concentrating very early, but in American universities, we often fall behind, but, but then by the time we're ready for graduate school, we're ahead. You, you specialize in graduate school. I'm we sorry, are speaking with Boulain Tartelet, the author of Beyond Genius. I want to, when it comes to genius, I want to thank the geniuses at Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. They're putting together a wonderful quarterly magazine, a physical magazine that includes some of the, the best writing in the world today. We're going to support the show and bring us high-quality guests like Boulain Tartelet. I want to run a short feature about liberties, and then we'll be back with Bulent to talk more about what it takes to be a genius, what it takes to be an Einstein, a Newton, a Shakespeare, or a Beethoven. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Boulain Tatelet, the author of Beyond Genius, who's been laying out his characteristics and legacies of transformative minds, rebellious, uh, and people who recognize divine, the divine proportions. Bulent, you mentioned that your background is in theoretical physics, um, but you're also interested in the arts. All the characters, or certainly four of the five characters, were both proficient scientists and philosophers or artists in their own way. The one who stands out, though, who wasn't, was Beethoven. And yet there's a mathematical quality to Beethoven's work, which is astonishing given that he wasn't a, an accomplished scientist. How would you explain that? Was there something quite literally divine, do you think, about his mind or his work? That's a great question. I was giving a lecture on Leonardo's mathematics, the mathematics underlying, uh, underlying his artwork at the Aspen Institute. This was at a conference uh, about 12 years ago. And in the back of the room, uh, there was a fellow taking copious notes. At a break, he came up to me and he said, it's astonishing, he said, those Fibonacci sequences, those numbers, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, etc. He said, as you were showing how Leonardo used them, I looked at Beethoven's first symphony and the repeats were exactly along Fibonacci sequence. Now, Fibonacci sequence is generally called the you know, called nature's numbers. We see them in plants, the way trees uh, bifurcate, branch, how veins on leaves branch, etc. There's according to the Fibonacci numbers. 
Beethoven, with only five years of education, was a very poor student, in fact, in his own time. He, t he might have known how to multiply numbers at one point, but in his adult life, he couldn't multiply 12 times 12. He would add them. He would add 12, 12, 12 in sequence and then get his answer as 144. We see this from his conversation books. And yet he imbued his music, not only the first, but the third symphony, the fifth symphony, the great symphonies with the Fibonacci series. He must have been uh, conversing with nature in his walks in the Vienna woods. It's the only way you can pick up this, these numbers. I suspect Bach mentioned that you considered also adding Bach into this uh, into this group, uh, maybe with or without Beethoven. There's there's much more of a formal math math mathematical quality to Bach's work than to Beethoven's, isn't there? This is true. It's true. It's also true. There's there's the uh, the um, uh, Hungarian composer Bartok who used it all the time, but. They're truly great, transformed us. Uh, Bach, I would say Mozart, and certainly Beethoven. Although my good friend Alan Fletcher, the musician, put in he put Mozart on a class slightly below. He was uh, uh, not transformative. It wasn't changing music as much as he was perfecting the style, the genre of well, the time. Certainly, I don't know what you think of uh, the movie, I'm sure you've seen it, Amadeus, that presents Mozart as an almost unthinking genius, as, as someone who yeah. just acquired genius almost haphazardly. How would you explain it? Can it be learned? Many, many books, you know, this bullet about how we can become geniuses, the 10,000, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 hour rule. Can geniuses um, be manufactured? I know this is not a, a how-to book. It's not a book about how you can become a genius. But what's your sense in our democratic age about manufacturing genius? I, I don't think you can manufacture them. You, you know, it's neither fully nurtured nor fully nature. Both have to be active. Uh, you can improve kids' test-taking abilities. You can make them, uh, they can score much higher uh, than they would without, this with, without the preparation. But the preparation will help you improve, but not to become a great genius. There's a certain inscrutable quality of a Leonardo, of a Beethoven. With Leonardo, for example, the fact that he was an illegitimate child uh, kept him from going into his father's business, that of a notary. He might have been a, become a very good notary and accountant, but we wouldn't have had Leonardo, the genius. So sometimes accidents help. With, with um, also Leonardo, we find that he had strabismus. His eyes didn't focus precisely. It's called lady, lazy eyes. But this has been shown to be a, a, a positive um, quality when you're focusing. You can, lazy eyes, certain forms of it can be used to focus, and it gives you an advantage. 
Rembrandt had it and Cezanne had it. Yeah, Re Rembrandt would be someone else we, we could include in this. Now, the old question, the ten, the, 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 the $100 billion question is, are these geniuses, do they create their age or do these ages create genius? In, in Napoleon and uh, Beethoven's cases, of course, they were created or by the promise of democracy and revolution, and then Napoleon in particular fell be because of that. We live in an age where I think we're rather uncomfortable with individual genius. You've written on, uh, on group genius, whatever that means. Yes. Uh, Einstein himself was, of course, a product of a, a Central European a Jewish uh, intellectual uh, and educational environment. To what extent in your mind are some of the geniuses created Science. by their age? Or, or I mean, I'm sure it's both, but or, or do they create their ages? Zeitgeist is a very important aspect. Without the Medici, we wouldn't have had the re Renaissance. We would have had individual talents, but not a structured... A large group, all um, competing, improving by by the uh, competition. You can't have a Michelangelo without a Leonardo, or a Raphael without a Leonardo or or Michelangelo. They need each other. So the, at the Kennedy Center, carved on the marble wall, there is a wonderful uh, quote from Kennedy from 1960, he's, he says, I don't understand, I don't know how to explain it, but have you noticed that Pericles, uh, Phidias, the great sculptor, lived in the time of Pericles, that uh, Leonardo lived in the time of, of the Medici, that Shakespeare performed, wrote in the time of Queen Elizabeth I, and, and uh, this is zeitgeist. Great leaders can have a positive zeitgeist. Here, oh yeah, as you say, they're products of their age. You wouldn't have had an Einstein without probably a Teller, an Oppenheimer, um, a, 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 a von Neumann. Um, what about our own age? As I said, we, we seem to have this fetish with the idea of the group. You no, know, most people seem uncomfortable with the idea of of granting genius to an individual. I can't tell you how many shows I've had with people who say, "Well, everything's collective." Um, what what age are we living in, Bulent? Is it the the age of AI genius of of people like Jeffrey Hinton and Elon Musk and, and Sam Altman? Well, the digital age certainly uh, this is the zeitgeist available to young people, and some of the hackers are the ones the most the ones who are most innovative. I in my last chapter in the epilogue where I talk about genius in the modern age, uh, I showed, I, I made a table up of, uh, of net worths because net worth of an of a innovator is essentially how much he's influenced the rest of society. Steve Jobs gave us the phone, the, the, the desk computer. Without our iPhones, we, they've become part of our bodies. I, he's dead, and we can talk about him. Uh, about um, about Elon Musk, I suspect he's just as great a genius in this class 
in innovative genius as a Steve Jobs. But fortunately, I didn't have to write about him because he's still alive and uh, uh, you have to die before you can be assessed properly. We may not be living in Beethoven's age because of the failure of the revolution and of Napoleon, but could it be argued that of all the geniuses you write about, uh, Boulin, Leonardo, Shakespeare, Einstein, Beethoven, that the, the, the world we live in is, is still, for the most part, the, the fifth genius you write about, Newton. We live in a Newtonian world, and he perhaps, as you suggest, is beyond genius more than anyone else. What is it about Newton that makes him such a compelling, both historical and contemporary figure? Well, he was reclusive. Uh, he would probably not have shared his great discoveries, except uh, he was challenged by, by Leibniz, who, who published his calculus, whereas Newton had talked about it and even given Leibniz some secrets about it. So uh, they all had different personalities, but reclusiveness is one of the aspects. You do your most important work in privacy, not in public. Uh, Newton made us modern. Uh, Stephen Greenblatt talked about Lucretius uh, giving us modernity. Well, I say Isaac Newton, in a sense, is the inventor of the modern age because his book, The Principia, uh, is regarded as the first event of the Enlightenment. Of course, the Enlightenment helped us to define democracy and secular democracy. We seem to be going away from that now. It makes me very nervous, but uh, yes, the Enlightenment, I think, was the uh, beginning of the modernity. I, Isaac Newton, showed that the universe was understandable mathematically. He invented calculus. The remarkable thing is we don't know whether mathematics is discovered or man-made. Maybe one day we will know. Maybe if there's extraterrestrial intelligence and we communicate with someone else and we use mathematics in the process, then we'll know. But no one has really been able to show whether mathematics is invented or something that is sort of a messy sort of science that we discover. You see, Newton argued so In a sense, Newton might not have been a scientist. He may have been an artist. He may have been inventing creativity, the idea, creatively, the idea of mathematics or of science and his laws of motion maybe as poetic as, 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 as the great works of Shakespeare. Both, of course, were Englishmen. Absolutely true. In fact, you know, uh, Einstein once talked about how if there hadn't been a Newton or Leibniz, we may still have had calculus eventually. Maybe hundreds, thousands of years, calculus would have been invented. But he said... If Beethoven hadn't lived, we would never have had the Fifth Symphony, the, the uh, C minor symphony. So in the arts, as you said, you create from nothing. In the sciences, you discover. But creativity obviously comes in. Uh, well, finally, Berlant, uh, 
you've got your five geniuses and beyond genius your new book i have to ask this question it's always a sort of i rather apologize the dumb interviewers question but i got to ask it who is the genius of geniuses you've written about um leonardo extensively uh you um you uh you're a lover of beethoven's music um you're a big admirer of newton and einstein uh is there one genius above all who's your I favorite just, i would say leonardo he's not he doesn't have these the uh influence on science that galileo newton and einstein have had but you can't imagine how much he foresaw the future. He talked about evolution 350 years before Darwin. He talked about the blood circulation 130 years before William Harvey. He, he invented um, uh, he invented uh, robotics four 500 years before we invented uh, discovered robotics. So I suspect he was the greatest. In that sense.